I greet you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. It's good to see everybody here in worship today, along with those who are joining us online. Whether you are familiar with the Christian calendar or not, for the past five months, we have been rehearsing the story of Jesus. Uh, Last November, during Advent, we were anticipating the incarnation. Then on Christmas, we celebrated Jesus coming into the world. The season of Epiphany focuses on the early ministry of Jesus' public life. And then we moved into Lent, where we followed our Lord to the foot of the cross and beyond. Last Sunday on Easter, we celebrated the good news of the resurrection. And every year, we rehearse the story over and again. In the traditional service, we oftentimes use the Apostles' Creed, which is a succinct summation of Jesus' life. And we talk about how we believe in Jesus Christ, our God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried the third day he rose from the dead. But have you ever noticed, anytime you recited that creed, that it skips from Jesus' birth to his death? We go from the Virgin Mary to Pontius Pilate, and that comma contains 33 years of Jesus' life. In the four Gospels, the authors focused on Jesus' three years of public ministry and specifically on his crucifixion and resurrection. Only Matthew and Luke tell us anything about Jesus' birth and infancy. And today, we're going to hear the only story from Jesus' childhood. It comes from Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 41. As you're able, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of the gospel. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, "'Son, why have you treated us like this?' Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Amen. And you may be seated. Luke introduces the story by saying that every year, Mary and Joseph traveled with their family to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This recalled how God had called the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, into freedom, and claimed them as God's own people. And as devout Jews, they would go every year. Now, the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem was about 65 miles And they would have traveled together with a large group of family as well as friends. So it probably took four to five days. They arrived on Friday for the Seder or Passover meal and spent an entire week in Jerusalem. 
Jesus was 12 years old at the time. And no doubt, like any other 12-year-old boy, he was adventuresome, he was rambunctious, and so he, along with his cousins and his friends, explored Jerusalem. Then the festival ended, and they started their journey back home. From the story, it's apparent that Mary and Joseph each thought the other had Jesus, or he was in the larger group. And it wasn't until they made camp that night they realized he was nowhere to be found. And so they rushed back to Jerusalem one, two, three days later. They finally find him in the temple. And Mary scolds him for all that he has put them through. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, we hear Jesus' first words in the Bible. And he said, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And in this first exchange at Jesus at 12 years of age, there are several different lessons I would like to pull out for us today that are important in each of our Christian lives. The first is this. This story describes a human search for identity. Eric Erickson was a prominent psychologist in the previous century who developed a psychosocial development model in which he said all of us go through eight predictable stages in life. When you reach your teenage years, which Jesus was on the brink of in the story we've read today, there are two questions that teenagers deal with. Who am I and what am I going to do with my life? It's questions of identity and questions of role. And we as adults recognize that because oftentimes we ask those young people questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to major in in college? What are you going to do after you graduate? Questions of identity, questions of purpose. In the story, we see Jesus at 12 years of age. And like any Jewish boy his age, he was anticipating his bar mitzvah when he would become a son of the commandments and under the Jewish faith, a full, responsible adult in their society's eyes. As Christians, theologically, we profess Jesus Christ was fully human and fully divine. But out of a sense of sacredness and holiness, we oftentimes emphasize Jesus' divinity more than his humanity. But if you take seriously that Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, he went through everything that 12-year-old boys do. And he too must have been wrestling with questions of identity and questions of role, of what will I do with my life. And what this scene briefly depicts is that Jesus identifies his relationship by his relationship with God. That his identity flows out of who he is as a child of God, as the son of God. Today is Confirmation Sunday in our church's life, and tonight, as Catherine mentioned a few moments ago, we're going to be confirming 55 of our young people will there publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ and join the church. And they're roughly the same age as Jesus was in the story that we hear today. Some of them were baptized as infants in this congregation, and we promise to help raise them in the faith. Others have been baptized this morning, and we look forward to them officially joining the church tonight. 
But they ask these questions of life. And we as a community of faith help them answer them. They ask the question, who am I? And we as their brothers and sisters in Christ respond, you are beloved children of God, precious beyond all measure. You are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, the firstborn among the dead. And together we are the body of Jesus Christ, serving the world in the name of our master. And you are not the church of the future. You're the church of today. And they ask the question, what will I do with my life? And the church responds, you are gifted, graced children of God who can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens you. And the Lord is going to do amazing things in and through you. But we remind you that your life, your value, your purpose is more than the accretion, the collection of titles and degrees and possessions and accomplishments. First and last, you are a child of God. And we realize that our true identity comes from our relationship with God. And we see that in Jesus' life today. I certainly experienced this in my own personal life. I've shared with many of you before that I became a Christian about 12 years of age on a youth retreat. And a year later, at 13 years of age, I first heard God's call to the ordained ministry. And then I made what in my estimation at the time was a terrible mistake. I told people about it. And suddenly, I wasn't Bill Burtz, the 13-year-old teenage boy. I was Bill Burtz, the kid who's going to be a preacher. And here, clearly, I did all the things teenagers normally do. I just felt a whole lot guiltier about them. And at times, that call seemed like a burden to me. But looking back, I realized it was a grace and a gift because it helped form my identity through my relationship with God. The second lesson we see in the story is how essential faith is in Jesus' life as well as in our own. There's this intriguing interchange, exchange between Mary, Joseph, and Jesus when they finally find him in the temple. Now, parents, three days. Three days have passed, and you can imagine Mary's mixed reactions when she finally sees her son. She's excited, she's delighted, and she's mad, and she wants to just absolutely put him over her knee and spank the daylights out of him. I don't know if you can do that to the Son of God, but I'm sure she felt that way. And she says to him, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Did you hear the play on the possessive pronouns there? Mary says, your father and I, she's talking about Joseph and herself. Jesus says, I had to be in my father's house, talking about God. And all three of them understood the nuances of the conversation. Jesus said, I had to be, I must be in my father's house. It was almost as if it were not a choice, but it was the driving portion of his life that would later lead him to public ministry, to the cross, and eventually to the empty tomb. And when you read that, when you hear Jesus' words, I would challenge us with the questions today, where is faith in our own lives? 
How is our relationship with God driving who we are? How essential is our faith to what we do on a daily basis? Is our faith an essential element of our identity? Or is it a peripheral part of our personality? Do we seek first God's kingdom, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or does the Lord get the leftovers of our life? Is our Christian faith of prime importance or a marginal matter? Do we find ourselves coming to God just when we have really messed up and need somebody to forgive us? Or we're really in a bad way and we need some help? Or do we come to God on a daily basis, seeking a deeper relationship with our Lord? Jesus reminds us how essential faith is for each of us. The third thing the story reveals is a theme that appears over and again in Luke, and it's a theme of seeking and of finding. Mary and Joseph seek Jesus, and they find him in the temple. When they find him in the temple, Jesus is seeking knowledge from the Jewish authorities and finding it in the conversation he is having with them. And I think you can make a case that our lives are shaped and formed by what we seek and search for. And there are all sorts of things that might drive us in life. We seek loving relationships, educational degrees, fulfilling marriages, thriving children, vocational success, material possessions, relevant friendships, community respect, charitable endeavors, free time entertainment. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things that I've just listed But the question becomes, where do they fall in our lives? Jesus was talking to the disciples one time about the worries and anxieties of this world, and he said to them, seek first God's kingdom, and all these other things will be yours as well. When we put God first in life, everything else begins to fall into place. When we put God anywhere other than first, then life becomes a jumbled mess of priorities where we don't know what is important and who we should follow. Jesus said, ask and you will find it given to you. Seek and you will find that you will receive it. Knock and you will discover that the door is opened for you. What are you seeking for? What are you searching for? What do you think about before you fall asleep at night, in the middle of the night, when you wake up in the morning? What are your daydreams filled with? If it's not first and foremost God's kingdom, then we miss the most important thing of all. You see, life is a series of ages and stages that we go through, and what we see at Jesus at 12 years of age is this wrestling with identity and of his role and what he will do with his life, and we discover in it uh, essences of identity and the essentialness of faith and of seeking the right things in our life. When I was at Candler School of Theology, there was a professor named James Fowler who took Eric Erickson's work, but he transposed it into the Christian faith. And he said, just as we go through psychosocial stages in life, we do the same thing in our Christian lives. And it got me to thinking about how all of us here are at a different place in life. And yet our faith is relevant wherever we might find ourselves. And here's the entire theme of the sermon, if you missed everything else. It's never too early and it's never too late to follow God. It begins with infants. At 8.30 and 11.15 today, we baptize, are, have baptized and will baptize infants in the faith. 
and the church promises and the family promises to raise them up. And I sometimes want to say to parents, do you really hear what you're promising to do? Those are fundamental, foundational promises we're making to make sure that child is raised in the faith. This is eternal matters. It's important in childhood. When children, for the most part, can't make decisions for themselves, their parents and grandparents have to do it for them to make sure that they're in Sunday school and vacation Bible school and choirs and that church is just as an essential part of their life as any other. Even be willing to sit with them in worship when they're squirming and trying to do all sorts of other things, but somehow knowing that they are immersed in the faith and they're learning more than we even realize. It happens in our teen years. I had two incidents this uh, winter and spring that just have impressed me. First was our senior Sunday when we had two of our young people speak with a maturity of faith. That was amazing. And then today to have three young people be willing to stand in front of this congregation and receive the waters of baptism and claim Jesus Christ as their Savior, that's important stuff. We realize that faith is important in our college years. We expect too little of our youth. And what I say to our seniors every year when they graduate, and we'll talk about this next year, next week, is that they make some of the most important decisions of their lives from 18 to 22. And we sometimes just shrug our shoulder and say, oh, well, they're just sowing their wild oats. Let me tell you, wild oats have a harvest. And what they choose in those years may affect them for decades to come. For people in their 20s, when you're just starting off in life and in your 30s and trying to figure out what your vocation is going to be, how you're going to find success, perhaps you're considering marriage, maybe parenthood. How do you serve God in those very busy, hectic times? For those who are in their 40s and 50s, some of the most prime and productive years, do you focus on career? Do you focus on family? Do you focus on education? Do you focus first and foremost on God and let everything else flow out of that? We see people in their 60s and 70s who have reached that point in life where they no longer have anything to prove, but they've got so much to share in the life of the church. And their example teaches us what it means to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And then I love our 80-plus members in the congregation. They're my pioneers of faith. They show me what the next stage of life looks like and how do you live a faithful life as God's people. But do you know what the subtle temptation is in every stage I just described? It's a subtle, insidious temptation consisting of two one-syllable words, and they are this, not yet. Not yet. I'll serve God after I get through college. I'll serve God after I get married and have a family. I'll serve God after I'm successful in my vocation. I'll serve God after retirement. I'll serve God after I'm done traveling. And it's a subtle temptation that speaks to us all of not yet. I recall attending a financial uh, planning seminar And the very first question the leader asked, he looked out over us and he said, okay, first of all, I need to know, when are you planning on dying? I haven't calendared it yet. And it was a shocking question. But then in financial terms, he began to talk about how you can die too soon or too late based on your financial resources. If you're too conservative, then you might not use the resources you have and... If you're too liberal, you might spend them all before you die. So when are you planning on dying? 
None of us know. Are we willing to put off the most important decisions in life to another day? There's a question I asked um, several years ago in a sermon. Some of you may remember the, the answer. It's this. When's the best time to plant a tree? It's not fall, and it's not winter, and it's not spring, and it's not summer. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. Whatever age and stage of life you find yourself in today, are you willing to say not yet that I'll serve God in the next age and stage of life? Are you willing to define your identity by your relationship with God? To recognize the essential element of faith and to realize that when we seek, God promises we will find. This is the day of salvation that we have the opportunity to respond to God's call in our lives. Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, every one of us find ourselves in a different place in life. You are there. You are there with us as infants, children, and teens, our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. And we all face challenges, but we also experience opportunities. There are struggles, but there are also blessings. Father, grant us your grace and your power to resist the temptation of not yet, because this is the day that you have made. You call us to rejoice in it and to serve you now and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.